The Biblical Foundations Bible Study, online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. Taught by Chris Martin, this course has been created to demonstrate the importance of biblical literacy in the 21st century. It's uh, great to see everybody this morning. We've got the biggest group here in class since February, and so uh, I assume uh, more people are getting their shots too and uh, are more comfortable with uh, being in the world. Uh, And so it's great to have everybody back. We've got another probably 50 to 60 folks watching online, and it's great to have those uh, folks in our class with us all the time, and they'll rejoin us when they can. Uh, but until then, we're going to continue to do this because it lets us reach a lot of people that have to travel or, you know, otherwise just can't be here. So we're going to continue this uh, for the long term, and I'm glad you all are here this morning. John chapter 9 is one of my three favorite stories in all of the Gospel of John. It is powerful. There are some aspects of Scripture that I look at and experience as I get ready And I almost think, I can't believe I have the privilege to teach this. It's so cool. It's so much fun. This is one of those texts, and I think you'll see why when we get into it, because it's a great picture of us, even though it's a very familiar story. As the title slide shows, I've called it Life Lessons from a Former Blind Man. You've all heard the story or even read the passage. I'm going to give you a little bit of depth that I don't think you have, because it is a picture of me and you. It's a picture of us. It's a reflection of believers, and I'll show you why as we get into it. Let me remind you where we came from. This is in John's sequential development of who Christ is, following chapter 8, where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. If he is the light of the world, then you would expect him to enable the world to see, and that's why John chapter 9 follows John chapter 8, because it's a picture of seeing the light of the world. Last week, I taught the text where Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. He took the name of Yahweh, and they wanted to stone him. And then last week, it said those that wanted to kill him all of a sudden couldn't see him, and he steps out. For this week's story, we don't know if he stepped out and saw this man. We don't know if it was a few days later. From John's chronology, we know it's after the Festival of Tabernacles, before Hanukkah. So we're between late September, early October, and Christmas. We don't know exactly when, but we got this story that John records, and thankfully he does. We're talking about giving a blind man who's been blind since birth sight. Why is that significant? Two things. Number one, in the Bible, giving of sight is the exclusive providence of God. In the Old Testament, there is no miracle of a blind man being given sight. In the New Testament, Jesus does it multiple times. We get something a little close to it when Saul got temporarily blinded and uh, the man he was living with uh, prayed over him and the scales fell off his eyes. That's not giving somebody sight. Paul always had it. He just temporarily lost it. It's exclusively the province of God. Cross-reference, Psalm 146, verse 8, the Lord opens the eyes of the blind, or Yahweh. Yahweh raises them that are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The other thing that is significant, and the reason why I believe Jesus did this miracle at this time, was because everybody in that Jewish world knew one of the signs of the Messiah was he would give sight. It comes from Isaiah 35, verse 5. In the context of the coming Messiah, it says, then the eyes of the blind shall be open. Now, spiritually, that's true. Jesus makes it even physically true because in the culture of his day, they didn't interpret Isaiah 35, 5 as spiritually interpreted as literal. So whenever somebody shows up that has the ability to give somebody sight, they've been prophesying for years, that's going to be the Messiah. He stands in front of them with the man that they've known for decades is blind. All of a sudden, he can describe what he sees, and they still don't believe Jesus. It's a picture of me and you. You normally come to church, and the pastor gives you three points, and you can write them down and remember three points. I'm going to challenge you. You get bonus this morning. I'm giving you 15 15 reasons why this guy looks like me and you. You can take notes if you want, but as we go through it, you're going to see why it really is a picture of me and you. Now, we can all understand what it's like not to see. 
We experience it every night when we get up to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night and it's pitch dark and you stub your toe on the way to the bathroom, right? We all know what it's like not to see. To experience it, you just have to close your eyes and try to move around. But none of us can comprehend and none of us can picture what it's like to never have the ability to see and all of a sudden have the ability to see. If you can imagine, just try to put your mind there of living in a world your entire life of darkness, and all of a sudden you got the ability to see, and you could see what people looked like, you could see the richness of the world, you could see the different shades of color, you could just see the brilliance of the daytime and the sun, and what that would make you do. It would change you. You would just start telling everybody you possibly knew. You'd just start wandering around in amazement. Can you believe this? You would become more vocal about an event than anything that's ever happened to you if that happened to you. Now, I also want to put this in the context of just how profound this is, because as non-ophthalmologists, none of us can really appreciate this unless you do a deep dive on this like I did. I've said before, I'll say it again. The two things that evolutionists cannot explain is eyesight and sexual reproduction. Sexual reproduction, very similar in terms of its complexity, but eyesight is the single most complex process your body does on a daily basis. Ophthalmologists tell us there are more than 230 independent steps between when a ray of light enters the front lens of your eye until your brain does something with it. 230, any one of which have a defect, you are blind. The odds of those 230 things just by random alignment happening to give eyesight is why evolution cannot be an example of how humanity exists today. The eye gives us an impossibility when it comes to just randomly evolving these things called eyes because you got to have 229 other things that work besides having an eyeball. And what I put up on the screen is just very simply a chart of just what's in the eye. A dozen things that have to be perfect. There's a whole bunch more in the the eye nerve and in the brain and everything that relates to eyesight. Uh, So I won't do a deep dive, but just to say when this we say is a jaw-dropping miracle, It's a jaw-dropping miracle because Jesus took all those things and put them into perfect alignment in a matter of seconds. I told you you got 15 points. Number one, describing this guy and describing us is he was congenitally blind just like we are congenitally blind, meaning from birth. John 9 verse 1, as he, Jesus, was passing by, he saw a man blind from birth. We don't know his name. We don't know anything about him, but we know he's an adult. We know from this that he never would have gone to school because they didn't send people to school that couldn't see with their eyes. Number two, we know that he never held a job because blind people didn't have jobs. They lined the walkway to the temple and they begged. And if you didn't have parents to support you, you lived off of donations into your little beggar's bag. He is a very, very um, uh, low position in society But a man that we're going to see some amazing things about of, just like us, uh, take his newfound sight and does amazing things with it. We don't know how old he was. We don't know his name. But I guarantee you this guy is going to be in heaven. We can ask him all of those questions when we get to glory. Cross-reference of why this is analogous to us we find in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 2 Corinthians 4.4 tells us we're just like this guy. In the case of the God of, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. The reason why no one voluntarily walks to God or understands God without God first working in us is we're blind and we can't see what we're walking to. We're blind and we can't see the reason to walk to him. This point got driven home to me my first year of college. I took a sociology class. Sociology is, in in most academia, the bastion of liberalism. I was really lucky to have a college professor that was a devout Christian, great teacher, and taught sociology with a Christian worldview. On the first day of class, she had us all together in a classroom just like this, and she said, are people, is mankind inherently good? Or is mankind inherently evil? And all these young, 
brilliant slash idiotic freshman minds debated that for the entire hour. And it was amazing to me how many, virtually the entire class besides me, said humanity was good. And humanity believes humanity is good. And that's because we're blind. But scripture teaches that humanity is bad. We are sinful. We are evil. And if there's a degree of culturalization to make us good, it changes our nature because our sin nature makes us inherently bad. So the professor taught us a critical point about our worldview about being blind and said, if your view is that mankind is inherently good, then we don't need God. If mankind's inherently good, we just need stuff to make them better. We need a little more education, a little more money, a little more opportunity, a little more equality, a little more justice, and good people become better. If mankind is inherently evil, all of that stuff is window dressing on evil. If mankind's inherently evil, we got to have God or we never get out of being evil. So I've always been appreciative of that sociology professor to teach me the point as a young man, we are born blind. We can't see good. We can't go to good. We can be culturalized for good, but it's to avoid some other negative consequence. That's not a reflection of who we really are. So it's a great little perspective. Little digression. He says in verses two and three, his disciples questioned him. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man or his parents sinned, Jesus answered. This came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. So the disciples took him on an immediate off-ramp as he's dealing with this guy's blindness, and they echoed the view of their day, which some people still have today, which is if something bad happens in the world, it's somebody's fault. Somebody sinned to cause that illness. Somebody sinned to cause that condition. I've even heard Christians talk about the recent ice storm is a result of people's sin in Houston. And I'm like, no, we live in a fallen world. And if it's anybody's sin, it's Adam's. It's not somebody today. That's not how God's judgment works. What he's trying to say to his disciples, what he's trying to say to us is we live in a fallen world but God is still sovereign. What does that mean? When I witness to people, I say this little phrase that I learned a long time ago from Josh McDowell that I just love. The world that was is not the world that is. And the world that is is not the world to come. In other words, the world that was, Genesis 1, fell. That's not the world that is today. The world that is today, which has fallen, is not the world which will come, Revelation chapter 20 and on. It's a picture of Genesis to Revelation with a fallen world in the middle that says, even though there is sin, even though there's natural disaster, even though there's all kinds of illness and problems, God is still sovereign. So when Jesus says to this guy, it came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. It says, even in our sickness, God's sovereignty can show itself. Even in our natural disasters, God's sovereignty and grace and mercy and love can show itself. So it took this blind man and it said, it's nobody's fault he's blind. That's the fallen world we live in. But God's grace can still come about in sickness and in tragedy and in death. Second point. Salvation is a sovereign act of God. This guy is a picture of us because what we see in him is exactly what happens with our salvation. We see in verse 5, Jesus says, as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. So this is our transition between John chapter 8 and John chapter 9. Jesus comes up to him and he's going to spit in the dirt, make some mud and put it on his eyes. And it's given the point that I just cross-referenced from the Psalms, that he's the light of the world. As I taught you two weeks ago, that means a lot of things, including he is God. It is undebatable. He grabs the mantelpiece and says, Yahweh, I am. And they wanted to kill him at the end of verse 8. So when he does this, he's just showing he is God. The reason they wanted to kill him is he is God, and they just weren't seeing it. Now, notice what he does. It says in verse 6, after he said these things, he spit on the ground. Could Jesus have done this miracle just by thinking about it and touching him? Absolutely. So he's trying to teach us something by doing this because he didn't need to do it. So why did he spit? 
historically, you may not appreciate that saliva has historically been regarded as the essence of life. Even today, if you want to figure out what somebody's genome is, you have them spit in a tube and you test the DNA. We still do it today to figure out DNA. We don't do a biopsy, we spit. Now, there's a great little um, saying that we've had for about a hundred years. And you've probably heard it. I guarantee you've heard it. But you've misinterpreted it. But when I teach it to you, you go, oh yeah, we still have that today. The idea that spit is the essence of life still exists today. We say spit an image. And you see it is S-P-I-T-T-I-N if you're from Texas, from anywhere else it's I-N-G, spit an image, but that's not it. Going back to Old English, it is spit or life and image. Over the last hundred years, it got messed up by people that had imprecise hearing. And today, if you read it, it's spit an image like the S-P-I-T-I-N-G. The etymology of the word is life and image. That's why we say a boy that looks just like daddy or a girl that looks just like mama is spit and image. That's life and image combined in your descendant. That's where that phrase comes from. So today, spit meaning life and historically spit meaning life is exactly why Jesus does this. Jesus spits in the ground and we view that as just kind of a throw off. I'm just going to spit. Jesus is saying, it's life. When I spit, it's life. Look at what he did then. He spit on the ground and made mud from the saliva and spread mud on his eyes. Now, why mud? If you think about your Bible, you don't have to go very far when you go back to the start of your Bible to say, oh, I've seen this before. Only God can bring life from dirt. Genesis chapter 1 and 2. That's how he made Adam. What does Adam mean? Man. So we see God from beginning working with dirt. We see God being life. His spit being the essence of life. He combines them together and he's got the ability to act to bring about the miracle. The miracle takes place when God acts. That's when the bridge gets crossed and this guy has the ability to see. But he does not yet see until number three happens. Number three is his role in his salvation. What role does he play? Notice, he didn't find Jesus. Notice, he didn't seek out Jesus. Notice, he doesn't think Jesus is the Messiah because he can't see him and doesn't know who he is and probably hadn't heard about him. He does absolutely nothing for his salvation other than two things. Number one, he allowed God to find him. And number two, he was obedient. That's all it is. He didn't go searching. He didn't go looking. He wasn't taught anything. He's just sitting there being blind and God jumps into his life and without him even asking, says, I'm going to change your life and I'm going to answer the prayer that he's been praying for his entire life, not knowing Jesus was coming to see him this day. Jesus says in verse seven, go, he told him and wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he left, washed and came back seen. Now that phraseology meant he walked blind and came back seeing. The miracle had already taken place, but the miracle had not yet manifested in his life. Just like with us, the miracle of your salvation took place on Calvary 2,000 years ago. It didn't manifest until a point in time that most of you can remember vividly and tell me a story about. So the miracle took place in the past, but it comes to realization when you let God find you and then are obedient and accepting the free gift he's trying to give you. Now, let me give you a brief little digression on why this in and of itself is a word picture for us, because this pool I have already introduced you to, this pool we talked about a couple of weeks ago at the Festival of Tabernacles where they went to get the water and poured it out. And in chapter six, Jesus said after they poured it out for the very last time on the last day of the festival, he said, I am living water, right? That's where I introduced you to this. 
It was at the base of the hill leading up to the temple. I've highlighted here in a little drawing. In Jesus' day, it was an elevated swimming pool, almost like, of natural spring water that they built bricks and a retaining wall around to let it fill up even higher. People could climb the stairs and jump into it. In the Roman conquest of 70 AD, it got totally destroyed. The natural spring was here, but everything around it was destroyed. It wasn't until a couple of decades ago that archaeologists found it. Today, you've got to climb down about 40 feet, which you can see there because of the staircase, because all that rubble is the rubble of the Roman conquest that's all around it, and they had to build some walls so that you could get down to it. Down there at the bottom, you see where those people are standing, those little things the kids are standing on? Those are cut-off columns that used to support the roof of the building or the pool where this miracle took place and where they got the water back in John chapter 6. So if you go there today, you walk down there, that's what you see. Obviously not what it would have looked like for this blind man, not what it would have looked like for Jesus, but that's the pool of natural water, still exists today. You can go see it. It takes about five minutes. Not a great thing to see, but it is one of the few things of antiquity still there. Our responsibility is to accept the free gift from God. Do not ever think we play a role in our salvation other than the role this man played. Jesus found him and he was obedient. If you arrogantly think we do anything else, you've got a totally elevated view of yourself and mankind. You've got a totally de-elevated view of God and his role in salvation. It's 100% God, 0% us except for being obedient. Number four, when this happens, others do not believe in supernatural change lives. Other people will look at you and say, who are you trying to impress? What wrong happened to you that you're trying to get out of? Who are you trying to fool? Everybody around us that's a non-believer does not believe in a supernaturally changed life. We see it in this guy in verse 8. His neighbors and those who'd formerly seen him as a beggar said, Isn't this the man who sat begging? Some said he's the one. No other saying, but he looks like him. He kept saying, I'm the one. This is hilarious because people around him look at him and go, he must have a twin. That guy can see the guy we know has been blind since birth. Others are like, no, he's a faker. He just looks like him. He combs his hair the same way. He wears the same ratty clothing since he doesn't have a job. He just looks like that scoundrel that's been begging for the last 20 or 30 or 40 years. He just looks like him. And this guy says, look, I'm a miracle and I can see. Look, five fingers, four fingers. Look, I see your red hair. Look, I see your green outfit. I see your brown shoes. I, the, the, he can see and he's saying, look, it's me. I'm the guy that's begging. See, here's my beggar's mat and here's my beggar's bag. And they're like, nah, that's somebody that just looks like him. That's somebody that's pretending to be him. So even when the miracle is in front of them, they don't see it. That's why when you become a Christian, when you've got to change life and you go to somebody that's not a believer and you say, I'm changed, they go like, yeah, right. You can have the most radical transformation ever. They will attribute it to something else. They're like, okay, tell me about your AA program. There's not an AA program. It's Jesus. All right. Tell me who you're trying to impress. What kind of job are you trying to get? Right? What kind of trouble are you trying to get out of with the police? Right? They'll look for anything to discredit the change in your life that is supernatural, and they're still blind, so they can't see it. And you, like this guy, just kept saying, it's me, I'm changed. There was this old person, there's a new person now. It's totally different. Point five, salvation requires a witness. Now, I'm not saying somebody's got to validate our salvation. I'm saying it requires a witness from us. Salvation does not allow any of us to remain silent any more than this miracle allowed this man to stay silent. This is why I did that slide of the eyeball and tried to say we can all picture what it's like to be blind by closing our eyes for a few minutes, but we can't imagine what it's like to be life blind and then all of a sudden seen for the first time. If that happened to us, we would explode in praise. We would explode in witness. We would want every interview, every TV station, every newspaper, every friend to know what happened to us. And that's the reaction our salvation should produce. Just like with this guy and his blindness, salvation are the same thing for us. An irresistible desire to tell the world, I've been changed by Jesus Christ. Let me tell you about it. 
This guy says, therefore they ask him in verse 10, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes and told me, go to Siloam and wash. And when I went and washed, I received my sight. He told his witness. He told his story. He had doubters among him that says, we want to know how you got your sight back. What's the trick? What's the magic? He's like, I don't know. Jesus did X, Y, and Z. I did exactly what he said. I could wash. Life lesson. Salvation is always personal, but it is never private. I'll have breakfast or lunch with a guy, and we'll be talking about life, and I'll say, tell me the last time you shared your faith with somebody. And an answer I commonly get is, oh, that's private. And I'll say, no, it's not. It is personal to you, but it is not private. There's a whole bunch of things in life that are private. This is not one of them. And just because it's personal to you does not mean it is private to the world. In fact, the picture in the New Testament and the picture here in John chapter 9 is it's the antithesis of private. Just like you getting eyesight when you've never had it for decades, that wouldn't be private even though that's personal. You would tell the world because you couldn't help yourself. That's our picture here. Verse 11, they brought the man who used to be blind to the Pharisees. The day that Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes was Sabbath. So again, the Pharisees ask him how he received his sight. He says again, he put mud on my eyes. He told them, I washed and I can see. So now he goes from those around him and the Jewish people to the Jewish leaders. They say the same thing. He repeats the same story. In other words, everyone he encounters, he continues to tell the story. Now, what you got to understand is he doesn't know how it happened. He can't explain the miracle. He doesn't know who Jesus is. He's never been to school, so he doesn't know prophecy about the Messiah. He's never held a job, so he's not real socialized. He just knows what happened to him. And there's a great life lesson there. Life lesson to have a witness for our salvation doesn't require us to be an expert witness but it does require us to be a fact witness. That means when you share your faith, you don't have enough to be an expert on eschatology, what Greg's preaching from Revelation. You don't have to be an expert on soteriology, Romans chapter 8. You don't have to be an expert on Bibleology, Genesis 1 through Revelation 21. You just got to be a fact witness. I'm a trial lawyer. I try cases prior to COVID all the time. I got a witness on the stand about how something happened. Let's say it's how a fire happened. And they'll say, I did this. I did that. The fire happened. I saw it myself. I saw the blaze and I ran. That's a fact witness. On cross-examination, if the other lawyer starts to cross-examine my eyewitness, my fact witness and say, Can you explain the electrical components of arcing and explain to the ladies and gentlemen of this jury how electrical power can arc from one thing to the other? My witness would say no, and I would say objection. The witness is a fact witness, not an expert witness. And the judge, 10 out of 10 times, would say objection sustained, move along counsel. You can't cross-examine a fact witness as an expert because they're not an expert witness. So it's just as improper for someone else to expect you to know all these great theological concepts when you're just a fact witness about what Jesus did in your life. Most Christians will not share their faith because they don't think they're an expert witness. You got the wrong standard. Jesus is not calling you to become an expert witness and share your faith because that calling is a professor. That calling is someone in professional ministry. Your calling as a fact witness is to say, as this guy is about to say, I don't know what happened. I was blind and now I can see. That's his testimony. That's your testimony. It's a fact witness, not an expert witness. It's the basic point of just you simply telling your story. Jesus changed my life. This was me at one point. This is me afterwards. Or if, like me, you got saved as a child and there's no, you know, tremendous story of sin in your past life and you became a Christian, it's, I'm a Christian and here's what God does in my life. 
Here's how I handle problems because I've got Jesus in my heart. Here's how I see the world because i got Jesus in my heart. That's my testimony. Bad things happen and God pulls me out of them. That's my testimony. So it's Jesus changed my life either before a Christian, to a Christian, or as a Christian as you live life. So there's a great application here. Most of you have probably heard this before. On this question of how often do you tell your story? Do those around you know your story? Or those around you who are not a believer have a degree of irritation because you've tried to tell them more than once? In other words, if you disappeared today or you were challenged today, would people wonder whether or not you were Christian? And the old adage is if it was a crime, would there be enough evidence to convict you? If you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? What Greg is preaching about in the end times, this is going to become a reality. We're going to have people charged, convicted, and executed for being a Christian. Play the mind game of what would happen if that were today. Would the people at my office be able to give testimony to convict me for being a Christian? Would my family who are not believers be able to offer testimony to convict me for being a Christian? If the answer is no, you got a big problem because it's a big problem of disobedience. If you got an issue where everybody knows your story, even if they don't believe, then you check the box on, that's up to God for them to believe. I'm just being obedient. Like this blind man, I'm just telling my story. Point number six, Christ is always culturally divisive. He was divisive in his world. He is divisive in our world. Verse 16, therefore, some of the Pharisees said, this man, referencing to Jesus, is not from God, for he doesn't keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a sinful man perform such signs? And there were divisions among them. What is unclear here explicitly, but is crystal clear implicitly, is the worldview from which they are speaking. You see it here a little bit. You see it in our world massively. What these people are talking about when they start with the Pharisees is he doesn't keep the Sabbath. He doesn't keep our Sabbath law. Therefore, he's a sinner. Everybody around him says, how can a sinful sinful man do miracles, right? What's the explanation for these miracles? They didn't believe him because there wasn't a natural explanation for how this guy got sight. Therefore, they discounted. This started in the late 1700s as a cultural phenomenon and called the Enlightenment. It became much more prominent in the 1800s. It became the cornerstone of the worldview in the 1900s, and today it is viewed as the equivalent of kindergarten philosophy because so many people adopt it. It's the idea of naturalism. And what you have to understand is in the current worldview of philosophy that views this as kindergarten concepts, if there's not a natural explanation, it didn't happen. It's fiction. It's the reason why Thomas Jefferson edited his Bible with an exacto penknife, and if there was a miracle, he cut it out, and he reduced his Gospels down to a couple of dozen pages. He just carved out all the miracles with an exacto knife because it didn't fit naturalism. It's the reason that prompted Charles Darwin to go to the Galapagos Islands and come up with an explanation for how species developed because he couldn't accept a supernatural worldview. He was a naturalist. He had to have a naturalistic explanation. So Darwin came up with the idea of evolution as a naturalistic explanation, i.e. non-supernatural. The definition I've highlighted at the bottom of the screen The philosophy of naturalism excludes whatever is supernaturally or otherworldly. Even life is a part of the scheme of nature. This philosophy believes everything comes from nature and returns from nature, i.e. there is no supernatural anything. If God exists, he wound up the world and he went away. Most of the people that are naturalists say there is no God. They're agnostic or atheist. So the view we see of the Pharisees, the view we see of the people of Jerusalem, is what we see today as a cultural cornerstone. If it's supernatural, they don't believe it. Meaning, if you start talking about Jesus, his resurrection from the dead, his supernatural transformation from you, they don't see that as naturalistic, they automatically discount it. It's automatically divisive. You go on this side of the world, they go on that side of the world. 
Point number seven, salvation requires us to stake a stand despite the divide I just described. Because when that divide happens, people say you are foolish, you are childish, you don't understand what happened, you believe in myth, you believe in fables, it didn't really happen to you, Jesus really didn't do all those things, it requires you to take a stand. Verse 17, again, they asked the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? He's a prophet, he said. Now, notice at this point, he doesn't know very much. He's not in a position culturally or educationally or spiritually to say this is the Messiah or this is God. In his limited worldview, he knew the stories from his parents about Isaiah, about Jeremiah, about all the prophets of the Old Testament. And what would a child know about the prophet or a child mind know about the prophet of the Old Testament? They were men from God. That's all this guy knows. How did this guy cure your sight? He says he's a man from God. He's a prophet. So when he says prophet, that's shorthand for man from God. Notice our life lesson. Every calling of God is tested. I can show you in virtually every single man and woman of Scripture where when God calls them, they immediately get tested. With Abraham, I can show you a dozen. Joshua, a dozen. David, multiple dozens. The prophets, dozens. We can go through everybody in the New Testament, everybody in the Old Testament. If there's a calling, there's a testing. Where God doesn't just say, you're now changed. You go live some happy, rich, joyous life. God challenges them to make sure that they and we understand when we become his child, life gets tougher, not easier. And he tests us on little things so we can withstand later the bigger test. If there's somebody in scripture that there's no description of testing, it means they're there to show us some other point and there's so little explained about them, we don't get to see their testing in scripture. I guarantee in heaven, just like our lives, they'll tell you about all kinds of testing. Testing on their jobs, testing with their families, testing with life circumstances of illness or job loss or other things that just drives them to the point of sanity. With every calling of God, there is a testing. So you look back at your life, testing on the job side with people that don't believe you, testing with family and family conflict. Those are good things. Those are things that God permits, just like Job's testing to make us better understand and better appreciate all the different aspects of God we don't understand without those things. Point number eight, those who know you best may not understand, but they should still see change. So those in your family that aren't believers, those in your work that aren't believers should still be able to see a change in your life, even if they don't understand. Verses 19 through 23 they can't get a straight answer, they think, out of the former blind guy. So they go grab his parents, and they say, is this your son who now says he can see? And they're like, in verse 21, we don't know how he sees now. We don't know who opened his eyes. So they see the results, but they don't understand the miracle. That's totally okay, because remember the context we're talking about. If the non-believer is blind, why do we expect them to be able to see? If these people were spiritually blind, why would we expect them to see? They can't. We don't know if his parents ever became Christians. I'm kind of thinking there's high likelihood they are because I'm willing to think this guy, when you see him at the end of the story, would not let his parents go until they became believers. Wouldn't surprise me if we see them in heaven too. But for now, they see the results. They testify to the results. They have no clue why. Look what it says at the end. The reason why the parents were fearful, even if they thought this was a miracle from Jesus, they were scared because the Jews already agreed that if anyone confessed Jesus as Messiah, he would be banned from the synagogue. This is referring to any follower of Jesus. This is referring to this blind guy, former blind guy, and his family. Now, to you and I, that may seem like no big deal. Let me put this into context so you'll understand these parental fears. 
they had a series of church punishments, right? They had Roman punishment. They had church punishment. Church punishment consisted of degrees of punishments regarding the temple. If you did something a little bit bad, they would say you are banned from the temple for one day. That means for one day, you could not go to the temple, you could not pray, you could not offer sacrifice, you were outside of the fellowship of God. The thought is, if you die during that day, you are not going to be with God. It's one day of terror, nothing would happen to you. If you did something a little bit more bad, they would kick you out of the temple for a week. And you lived in fear, for a week if I die, I'm going to hell. A greater punishment was being kicked out of the temple for a month because then you had to be a hermit for a month so no one would attack you, wouldn't trip and fall, you wouldn't have something fall on your head because during that month, if you got sick and died, you're going to hell. The ultimate punishment for the Jews was a lifetime ban from the temple because it meant we are sending you to hell and you have no recourse. They said their opposition to Jesus was so severe. They said, if anyone proclaims him as the Messiah, we're banishing them to hell. They can never go to the temple again for as long as they lived. Which means in Jerusalem, you had to move to Egypt, to Athens, to Rome, or somewhere in between. You had to get out of the country because you were no longer welcome in the temple. And if you're not welcome in the temple, there was nothing for you to do in Jerusalem. You couldn't get a job. You couldn't get a date. You couldn't go to a restaurant. You couldn't do anything if you couldn't get in the temple because everybody else thought you would pollute whatever they were doing, vocationally, religiously, or anything else. That's why the parents were scared. Point nine, what we see as a good thing, the spiritually blind see as a bad thing. We see our salvation like this guy saw his blindness cured. We want to tell the world the good news The gospel to the spiritually blind, that's a bad thing. Verse 24, so a second time they summoned the man who had been blind and told him, give glory to God. We know this man, Jesus, is a sinner. Now you read that in English and you think give glory to God, that sounds like a good thing. It's not in this context. Your Bible, if you've got, if you're reading along in the Bible, should have a little cross-reference there to Joshua chapter 7. In Joshua chapter 7, he gets a guy named Achan that was involved in idolatry. And he brings him in front of him. And when confronting a sinner, Joshua says, give glory to God. Joshua meant it for good. These guys twist it and they quote Joshua chapter 7. And they say, give glory to our God, the God of our creation, In other words, condemn Jesus. We know this man, Jesus, is a sinner. So they are misusing Joshua 7. It sounds like they're being pious. They're not being. They're being very, very sinful. But we've got to understand a great little life lesson here because what this guy views, this blind guy, former blind guy, is the greatest thing of all time. They view as something very, very bad. Life lesson. Satan's opposition to Jesus is extreme. So we should accept that Satan's followers' oppositions to the followers of Jesus to be equally extreme. I've encountered circumstances in my life where other lawyers' hatred of me, I mean vile, vicious hatred, because I'm a Christian, has just been jaw-dropping. I've known some, I could tell you stories over lunch that would just shock you at the degree of hostility between atheistic or agnostic lawyers that I have to deal with that are just outrageously offended by my Christianity. You should expect the same thing. Opposition within families, opposition within place of employment, opposition within the neighborhood. And a lot of times we filter that, oh, it must have been something I've done. It must have been something I said. I must have done something to offend them. They must know something about me that puts this in the wrong context. That's not it at all. It is the parallel between the degree of Satan's hostility towards Jesus Christ and all those who follow Satan have the same degree of hostility against all those who follow Christ. 
That is a reality in scripture. That is a reality in our lives. And if you've not experienced it, you're probably blind to the warfare, the demonic warfare you find yourself in on a daily basis. It is warfare. Another lesson for another day about how to deal with it. But this is a picture of what's going on here. Point number 10 on our way to 15. We're almost there. Point number 10, God calls us to share our changed lives. So we see here a digression of witness. We see a number one, a witness of what happened. We see number two, your other testimony about the things that means in life, what it did to change your life. It says in verse 25, the former blind man answers, whether or not he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind and now I can see. Yeah. I love that verse. He says, I can't explain it. I don't know his background. I don't know his moral background. I can't tell you if he's a good Jew or a bad Jew. I just know because of him, I was blind and now I can see. Our testimony should be just as simple. It's changed by his grace. My favorite illustration that parallels this is a story I read from a guy from Wales, the western side of England, who was an alcoholic for years, and he became a Christian. And when he became a Christian, he never drank a drop of alcohol again for as long as he lived. And he got interviewed, and, and some people were watching him that were taking an account of this for the press, and he's being questioned by people that don't believe the transformation. They think the credit belongs to AA or some person or his wife or something. And they want to know, how did this happen? How did you, you know, dry out? How did you detox? And the guy said, I don't know. I just know in my home, Jesus turned beer into furniture. That was his testimony. He didn't know how he detoxed. He didn't know how he lost his appetite for it. He just knows in his house what he used to spend money on for beer, now he can spend money on for furniture. And that was his testimony. What used to be beer, now is furniture. That's a great testimony. I read that and its simplicity stuck with me for years because it's such an awesome story of how simple but yet profound our testimony can be. Point number 11. God calls us to share our testimony over and over. A lot of Christians, when I, they'll come to class and I'll say, you got to share your faith, or they'll have lunch with me or dinner, and I'll say, you got to share your faith. They think it's a check the box. They tell one person their story, and then they clam up again for the rest of their lives thinking they check the box. I never have to do that dreadful thing again. That's not what Jesus allows. That's not what the New Testament allows. Verse 26, they then ask him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? This is the third time the Pharisees ask him this question. It's the fourth time somebody's asking him the question. He says the same thing over and over again. Life lesson. God never expects us to explain how his miracles in our life occurred, but only publicly give him the glory that they did occur in our lives. My testimony consists of the events in my life that have a supernatural timing or a supernatural result. I can talk about financial issues. I can talk about kid issues. I can talk about marital issues. And I can describe something that is jaw-dropping miraculous. And I say to people, I can't tell you how that happened, but I give glory to God because I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, God is the reason why, fill in the blank. My kids are healthy. This financial thing got resolved that was impossible to solve. Whatever the situation is, that's my testimony. So when it comes down to you sharing your testimony, it's not you explaining how the miracle occurred. Because you don't know what God did. You just know what he did in your life. So you explain just like this guy. I don't know. I was blind. Now I can see. Point number 12. God gives boldness to those who share their faith. Because a lot of times people start dealing with the testimony and they're like, I'm scared to death. I'm shaken like a leaf. I'm so terrified. I'm so scared I can't spit the words out. To every single person, I tell them, Scripture promises when you try to share your faith. One miracle is God supernaturally works to give you boldness. Words that you did not know, you will find. Courage that you did not have will appear. Strength that you were lacking will appear. A shaking that you have will be diminished. 
We see in this guy, verse 27, I already told you, he says, exasperated, and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You don't want to become his disciples too, do you? Now, there's an inference there that jumps off the page. Also, you want to be a disciple also? You want to be a disciple too? What does it say about himself? You want to be a disciple also like me? You want to be a disciple too? Pointing to himself, right? He's saying, I'm a disciple. Do you want to be a disciple? Is that why you're asking me three different times? Now, to any sane person, saying that's a death sentence, right? These are the people that have the ability to have you stoned for blasphemy. He's taunting them because of a boldness that is clear from the text that is supernatural. This guy, uneducated, unvocational, unsocial, has a supernatural boldness where he says, do y'all want to become a disciple like me? Childlike exuberance that is clearly supernatural. Point 13, God gives us the right words when we share our faith. I could show you a whole bunch of scripture with 15 points. I don't have a lot of extra time. I'll do it on another lesson. But this is a picture of God giving us the right words. Verse 28, they ridiculed him. Verse 30, the guy says, this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he's from, yet he opened my eyes. We know God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he listens to him. Throughout history, no one has ever heard of someone opening the eyes of a person born blind. In other words, it's not in the Old Testament. If this man were not from God, he wouldn't be able to do anything. For an uneducated guy that's never had a job, never been socialized, he's been a beggar for his entire life, that is jaw-dropping theology. I can't explain to you how it works. I can just tell you from my own experience when I share my faith with other lawyers, with other people I've run into, in almost every single instance, I've come away from the situation and thought about it, reflected on it, and I've thought, why did I say that? I, I don't know where those words came from. He asked me a question, and I can't believe I gave him an answer, and I'll go look it up to make sure I was right and think, wow, I got the right answer. Every single time I do it, there's a validation that God, through the Holy Spirit, gives me the right word, the right sentence, the right response. And if you think about how salvation works, this process ought to be real simple. What did I tell you about salvation? It's 100% God, 0% you. Witnessing is the same thing. Your words about your faith to someone else, we like to think of as 100% us. It's 100% my brain, 100% my words, 100% my story. If that's your opinion, you're pridefully delusional. It's our words and our story, but it's the Holy Spirit in our heart that tells us what to say, how to say it, and when to say it. In other words, for the Holy Spirit to move in the heart of this other person. If it's a matter of your persuasion, you can't give light or sight to the spiritually blind any more than you can create physical sight among a congenital blind person. None of us can heal and create sight. Why do you think any of us in our own words can give spiritual sight? It's 100% God. So you don't have to worry about my words and getting it right and not offending them. Your prayer is, God, you give me the words to say. I can't do it. God, you speak. Let me get out of the way. That's what I pray when I come up here to teach every week. I say, I don't know what to say, God. You give me the words. I leave class and go, can't believe that came out of my mouth. And it's the Holy Spirit. It's not Chris. Point 14, sharing your faith generates opposition. When you share your faith, it's rare to get hugs and high fives. Instead, you get pouts and pokes. Verse 34, they say to him, you were born entirely of sin, they replied, the Pharisees to the former blind guy, and you're trying to teach us. Then they threw him out. That means they threw him out of the temple. They said, never come back. You are banned for all time. This guy, in that instance, lost his physical life. 
that was a a uh, being cast out. That's a condemnation. He was thrown out of the temple, which de facto was thrown out of Jerusalem, which de facto was thrown out of Israel, which de facto in their mind was thrown out of heaven, which de facto was thrown out of his family. And he never loses faith. He never loses commitment. It's a realization that if the degree of opposition to us sharing our faith is that extreme, Having Jesus Christ as our Savior is worth it because there's a greater cause to be achieved. There's a greater purpose to be pursued. Final point, point number 15, sharing our faith always leads to worship. Notice what it says, verse 35. When Jesus heard they had thrown the man out, he found him. That is the reason this is one of my three favorite stories in all the Gospel of John. That verse right there. Because no matter what the world does to hurt you because you stand up for Jesus Christ, this verse says he will find us. He never loses us. We are always his child. He always loves his children. He always takes care of his children. So the world may try to hurt you, discredit you, defame you throw you out of whatever, club, job, family, whatever. This says Jesus will find you. Jesus explains, do you believe in the Son of Man, the Messiah? This guy says, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus answered, you've seen him. In fact, he's the one speaking with you. This guy says, I believe, Lord, and he worshiped him. One of the most significant verses in Scripture, because one thing that is crystal clear in Scripture is that worshiping a simple man is an abomination. When Cornelius tries to worship Peter, he says, get up before God strikes you down. When men try to worship angels, they say, get up. We only worship God. When mankind, like Nebuchadnezzar or Herod, claim to be God, God struck them down like animals or struck them with worms, which is a pretty good sign they're not God, right? Humanity cannot accept worship. That's the first two commandments of the Ten Commandments. So when this guy worships Jesus, it's recognition he's more than just a man. He is worthy of worship. He is God. Jesus finds him. Jesus blesses him. Jesus loves on him. Jesus would have hugged him. Jesus would have encouraged him and said, I know you just got thrown out of the world. I'm going to be by your side. We're going to do some great things together. And as a result, this guy worshiped. Four points to conclude an application. Number one, we share our faith. We should appeal to undeniable facts. The one thing that no one can deny is what happened to you. The reason your story is unrebuttable is because it's your story. And as long as you're truthful in your story, no one can challenge it because you're just saying, what happened to you? And no one can say that's a lie if it truthfully happened to you. That's your testimony. Number two, when we share our faith, we should answer questions directly. When they said, what happened to you? The guy said, I don't know. I was blind. Now I can see. When somebody says, how do you explain this? You say, I don't know. I just know this was the circumstance I was in. This is the person I was. Here's who I am now. It's all God. Point number three, when we share our faith, we should refuse to argue. These guys came back at the former blind guy three times trying to get him to argue, to sin, to get angry. Every single time he just kept telling his same story over and over. Jesus did it. I don't know how he did it, but I'm a changed man. That's our testimony. Jesus did it. I don't know how he did it, but I'm a changed person. That is undebatable and undeniable, and people can reject it, but they can't say factually you're wrong. Just like this guy getting thrown out of his community. We share faith. We tell others about losing our lives, which we cannot keep, to gain a Savior whom we cannot lose. Amen?
Next week, the good shepherd. It's been said this guy in chapter 9 is the first lost sheep found by the good shepherd. Next week, we'll see the good shepherd in action. After bringing in one lost sheep, chapter 10, we'll see him bring in some more lost sheep and talk about what it means to have a good shepherd. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the chance to study this lesson. We thank you for the ability to see ourselves through this guy. We look forward to visiting with him when we're in your presence in heaven. But until then, we just pray that his story will be an encouragement for us to share our faith, be an encouragement for us to trust the Holy Spirit to give us boldness and words that we don't have, that you would open up supernatural opportunities in unbelieving family members, in unbelieving co-workers and unbelieving neighbors to share your our faith that you have given us. We ask for your opportunity. We ask for your words. We ask for your boldness. And because of that, we praise your name. We worship you for your gift to us. That's 100% you and 0% us. We are in awe at your love, your mercy, your grace, and your forgiveness. And we just say thank you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for living, leaving us here. Thank you for putting us in places to be a difference for you in a world that so desperately needs you. Lead us and guide us and keep us safe until we're back here together next week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. See you all next week. This has been a presentation of the Biblical Foundations Bible Study. Online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. All rights reserved.